Well, kudos to Jason uh, for finding that clip for me this week, uh, because I believe it illustrates what Paul's trying to do here at the end of First Thessalonians. If you've been with us, uh, we've been working our way through the letter to the Thessalonian church, and here at the end, uh, we find ourselves with some final instructions that Paul has for this young church plant. So turn with me real quick, First Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 12, I'm going to read it, and then we'll dive into it. But we appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Oh, sorry. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstance, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise the words of the prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So what's Paul trying to do here? It's the end of the letter, and it, is he, it seems like he's kind of running out of space, like he only had four pieces of parchment, and he's kind of coming to the end, and he's like, oh, I got so much more to say, and he just kind of scribbles a bunch of quick sayings. I don't think that's what Paul is trying to do. What I think he's trying to do uh, is a few things we're going to talk about this morning. One, I think he's trying to sum up this letter all the teachings, all the things he's talked about. And he's trying to sum it up in a way that's easy for them to understand. Some quick ways to reference what he's been talking about. Kind of like a quick guide to the Christian life. Think about it. Learning how to be a Christian is really challenging and really complex. Kind of like we saw in our video, learning a second language can be challenging and complex. Now, let me show you how challenging it can be. This is what Paul writes in Colossians about what happens when someone comes to Christ. It says this in Colossians 1. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So think about that. God takes us, takes us out of a kingdom of darkness with its own language and behaviors and life. And he puts us into the kingdom of his beloved son. How do we live in that kingdom? How do we learn how to live in what many people call the forever world God is building? It's incredibly challenging. Kind of like Joey and Phoebe. It's it's really hard. It's kind of like learning a language. Now think about your first language, whatever that is. You learn it pretty naturally. By the time you're three or four, you're speaking in somewhat complex sentences, but no one's ever taught you the grammar. But when you take on a second language, it's a lot more challenging. It's a lot more complex. When you learn that second language, you have to learn the grammar. You have to learn all the tenses and how to order the words, how to communicate it effectively. And if you remember growing up, what did teachers do to help you learn grammar? They created short little sayings such as I before E except after C, right? That's a quick way, a quick little saying to help you remember 
how to spell certain words. Or maybe you get confused on when to use principle, P-L-E, or principle, P-A-L. There's a quick little saying for that. Remember, the principle is a Powell, right? So you can memorize it that way. When I learned Greek in college, we had all kinds of little mnemonic devices to try to understand and learn and memorize really complex, challenging things. And that's what Paul's trying to do to this church. They've, they've just come to Christ. It's a young church plan. And he's saying, okay, you've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your son. Let me give you a few quick little grammar rules for the Christian life. And if you think about it, this is how we learn behavior as well. If you grew up in a home where disagreements were settled with shouting or violence, most likely you'll repeat that same pattern. So we grow up, we spend a lot of life in the kingdom of darkness for those who come to Christ later in life. We're put into this new kingdom. How in the world are we going to learn that? Remember, uh, if you've ever learned a second language, uh, it's slow. And sometimes you have to pause and think about what you want to say, right? We expect that when we come to the new life. We're rethinking all of life in Jesus. That's a lot to think about. And sometimes we do have to stop and say, okay, I used to respond to this this way, but now that I'm in this kingdom of light, I I need to respond to it this way. And we take time sometimes to sit and think about it. But eventually we want that to kind of come second nature. We want it to be a progression to where we don't necessarily have to think it through all the time. Now, you may be wondering, Jeremy, are you saying that the Christian life is just, all right, we had the Old Testament, we had rules to follow, now we have the New Testament, and we have new rules to follow. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that something really profound happens. Hebrews chapter 8, he quotes Jeremiah, he says this, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, I will write them on their hearts, I will be their God and they shall be my people. So when we come into the kingdom of his beloved son, he writes these new laws on our hearts. He scribbles them on our, in our minds and on our hearts. But here's where we miss it because we're afraid of words like work and effort as Protestants. We think that God just kind of downloads it into our brains. Right, Kind of like that scene in The Matrix uh, where Neo is trying to learn martial arts and they just put in a disc and it like downloads into his brain. We think that is how it works. But the Christian life is not The Matrix. It takes conscience effort. It's not like we live life and then go to sleep and God's like, oh, while he's asleep, I'm going to, you know, scribble on his heart a little bit here. No, in order for us to learn the fluency of the new life, we give ourselves to things. And in particular, that's what Paul's going to do. He's going to explain three ways that we can cooperate in learning that grammar of the new life. He does it, like I said, three things. Intentional teaching and leadership through communal influence and through a rule of life. Let's take a look at that first one. Through intentional teaching and leadership. This is what he says in verse 12. But we appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. 
esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Um, these are the kind of passages that I wish someone else would get up and preach this because it seems so self-serving <laughs> for me as a pastor to get up and talk about what you should do to be as a pastor. It feels I, not manipulative at all. Please bear with me as I try to get through this. But what Paul is saying here is that to learn the grammar of the new life, to grow in the kingdom of his son, you have to get to know your leaders. You have to get to know them. Now, this word here, my Bible says respect. Your Bible might say something else. But it's an interesting word here because the Greek word is to see. Now, what the interpreters did is they didn't just write, oh, well, this word says to see. Let's just write it. They kind of took the next step and kind of did the translation work for you. And they put the word respect. But what's he saying? Is he saying that if you just like look at your leaders, like if you just, you know, Sunday morning, we're just going to take 10 minutes for you to just stare at us with your eyes and then you'll learn how to new, live the new life. No, that's not what he's saying. Of course not. Matthew 2, 2 uh, uses this same verb. And I think in a way that makes a little more sense. Now, early on in Matthew, we get the story of the Magi, the, the three wise men who are uh, living in the East. Uh, they see Jesus's star, they see the star and they follow it to Herod and they ask where Jesus is. But listen to what the scripture says, asking, so they come to Herod and they say, where is the child who was born king of the Jews? For we observed, that's the same word for respect that I just mentioned, his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. Now, they didn't, the star didn't just come up and they say, oh, the king of the Jews is born. That's great. Let's get on with the rest of our life. No, what happened? The star became their guide. It helped them navigate the journey they were on. They wanted to go see the king of the Jews. So they walked, the star led them. If they had to, you know, go around like a mountain, maybe they could always look up and see, okay, there's the star. We're going this way. We're going to take a little venture here, but we're going to kind of get back and go that way. hear me. I'm not saying I'm the star in your life. Okay. <laughs> I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is that's what leaders are here for, to lead and guide you, to help people see what life in the kingdom is all about. And Paul mentions three reasons why this is. <laughs> it's like three and three and three. Three things that you should pay attention to. The first thing he says is that they labor among you. Respect those who labor among you. Now that Greek word means to exert great effort, to be exhausted. And Paul already mentions this early on in the letter in chapter 2, verse 9. Listen to what he says. You remember our labor and toil, brothers and sisters. We worked night and day so that none of you, so that we might not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses as God also, how pure, upright, and blameless our conduct was towards you as believers. As you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children, urging and encouraging you and pleading that you should lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 
That's the model for ministry. Paul labored. He toiled among them as an example of the new life. Leaders are to work hard. We might, people might disagree on who can be a pastor or what the pastor should do. What is this job? What's it? But whatever it is, they need to work hard at it. Work hard to be that example. Second thing he says here is that they have charge over you. What does he mean by that? Well, like a shepherd leads a flock, leaders are to guide the community through life. We're supposed to be living life, following trusted leaders. Because they will give an account. I don't know if you've realized this or not, but your pastors, your leaders, anyone who kind of takes you in and says, hey, I want to care for you. I want to lead you. I want to help you. They will, the Bible says, particularly pastors, will give an account. Hebrews 3, 13, 17. They are keeping watch over your souls. That's what pastors do. And will give an account. On the day of judgment, Jesus comes back. Matt talked about that a couple weeks ago. We're all going to be together. And I don't know what the timeline is. I don't know. But I know there will be a point when all the pastors are going to get called apart. And it's going to be time to talk about how did you lead these people. You will give an account. Paul says, observe them because they got a lot on the line. And finally, Paul says they are to admonish, which is to teach. We've talked about this in previous sermons, but the word admonish means to put a warning into someone's head. So watch their life, pay attention to what they teach, because they're going to have to give an account. It's a good summary of spiritual care in a church, whether you're a small group leader, a deacon, Whatever it is, if you have people that you're caring for, this is a good summary of what it should look like. Now, um, in some ways, I'm saying don't let me off easy. (laughs) Observe my life. Pay attention to it. Not because I'm awesome and I got it all figured out. Do it to challenge your pastors. Don't let them off easy. Know them, know their life. Now, let me tell you, it's not a one-way street. It's not just, you know, we sit here in the sanctuary and you come in and we need to be going out to you. There's a give and take in the Christian life, in particular leadership. So pay attention to your leaders, yes, but also leaders, we need to be out among them as Paul was with this church. Why? Because I've said it before, and I'll say it again and again, the Christian life, the way of the kingdom, the grammar of the new life, whatever you want to say is better caught than taught. And I can give you a great illustration. Who's ever put anything together via Ikea, right? Who's ever ordered their daughter a uh, dollhouse and had to put it together on Monday night football while your fancy football team loses their championship Uh, Maybe that was just me, but you get all these parts and you get a book and there's these horrible drawings and you can't figure it out. What do you do? You go to YouTube, you turn on a video and you watch someone put it together. Listen, 
if you spent like three hours with in prayer with whoever your leader is, I, I would bet that would be pretty formative compared to if you just listened to give you three 30-minute sermons on prayer. It's just the way it is. Jesus came to earth and lived among us. God didn't send the Bible down and say, there it is. He sent a person, a God person, but a person nonetheless. So the, let's go to the second way we learn the rhythms of the Christian life. We learn them through communal influence. He says this, And we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. Once again, better caught than taught. And it's another great reminder of the genuine responsibility we have to help model and teach the Christian life to one another. In a real way, you're only going to go as far in the Christian life as the people you surround yourself with. In some ways, that's really scary. And in some ways, that's really awesome because there's a lot of godly people here at Rooftop that love the Lord, that have established patterns of life that you could learn from, connect yourself to. But we don't think that way because we're children of the enlightenment, right? We think, therefore, we are, right? We think if we just read the Bible enough, now hear me, I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't read your Bible, but we think if we just read the Bible enough, if we listen to enough Bible Project podcasts, if we buy the latest popular pastor's book, it's all going to be okay. But Paul is saying over and over, it doesn't work that way, that it is life together and I don't want to gloss over that because Paul tells this church that there's specific things that they need to do in their community together. And we're going to talk about that. But I don't want to just move past this and go, oh, okay, let's get to the thing here. The hardest part of preaching sermons like this is not teaching you what to do when you get together in your small groups or you get with your pastor. That stuff's easy. The hardest thing to do is convince you that you need community. That's the hardest thing to do because we live in the Western world where we're all just individuals. And if we become experts and, you know, fill our brains with the right stuff, it'll all be okay. But that's not how it is. The challenge is to convince you that I have to be around people in this Christian life. And when I mean around them, I don't just mean, well, I go to my small group once a week and I sit through it and then I go home. I mean, you're really present there. You're, you're there with the people around you. You're listening to them. You're talking to them. You're letting them speak into your life. You're speaking into their life. But what does Paul say the community needs to do? Okay, so let's shift it. He's saying, got to be in community. Here's the things that your community needs to do. And what he gives them is kind of like a little grammar rule. This is a quick little saying, kind of like an I before E except after C, right? He says, Admonish the idlers, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient. Admonish, encourage, help, be patient. Now, if you've been with our series, you know that what Paul's doing here, though, is addressing specific issues for this church. 
some of the idlers had uh, revolted against the concept of work because they thought Jesus was going to come back tomorrow, the next day, right? So they needed to be warned. Some of them were discouraged, faint-hearted, because they were worried that they would miss that their uh, ancestors, their relatives who had already died, would miss Jesus' second coming. Some of them were weak because they were so concerned about judgment day that they were going to get judged, that they were so scared that that they were just weak. This was a specific thing was Paul was calling them to do. Now, can I give you a a hint? I've been doing ministry for 20 years. No one, okay, has ever knocked on my door, made an appointment with me and said, hey, I don't need to work a job tomorrow because Jesus is coming back. So does that mean this passage just doesn't mean anything? No. What it means for us is that what kind of issues do we face in St. Louis in 2023 that might that we might need to be warned about? What issues in living in this modern world might cause our hearts to get faint? What about living in modernity causes us to be weak in our faith? You know, that word uh, faint-hearted, in the Greek, it means small soul. Have you ever experienced something that just made you feel small? For this church, it was worrying about, well, maybe my mom who died is going to miss the coming of Jesus. I just feel so small. Now, no one's ever come and shared that specific thing with me, but I felt faint-hearted in life. I remember a time when I was in ministry, And I didn't really fit in where I was, and I didn't know what to do about it. I kept thinking, well, if I just could get in the right church, get with the right people, then things will start to be a little easier for me, but I'm stuck in this place. And uh, people I went to college with and friends are kind of moving on and doing their own thing, and they seem to be flourishing, and I just, what's going on? And I remember two specific conversations I had with two people, and one of them admonished me a little bit. And said, hey, I hear you. Life's hard. You're in a bad spot. Um, it's not all your fault, but there's also things you can grow in. There's ways you can be a better shepherd. Here's some things maybe from your past that trip you up and you're sitting around complaining about it. But instead, hey, why don't you do this? But then I had another friend who sat me down and kind of gave me the other thing. Man, we lo- I love you. You're called to do this. God's called you to do this. He's going to be with you. You've got skills and talents and a calling. You can do it. Stay the course. Don't give up. And those were two incredibly impactful conversations for me. So yes, the issues might change. The issues might change, but the need, the necessity for Christian community does not. This is why the, the thing before this with leadership, that's why these things go together. We need leaders, pastors and elders and deacons and lay people. We need leaders who can come together and say, hey, these are the challenges that face people in the modern world. Where do we need to warn? Where do we need to encourage? Where do we need to help? And how above all that can we do it with patience? 
In reality, these four verses are what we're trying to do with the fourth floor here at Rooftop. When we join the fourth floor, we make promises to one another to say, hey, I want to be able to be in life with you, and I want to be able to admonish you, to encourage you, to help you, and I want to be patient with you. And I want to do that for you, and I want you to do that for me, and I want our leaders to show us the way through this crazy modern world. What's it mean to be faithful to Jesus? That's what the fourth floor is. It's a public commitment to do that. Now, anytime we talk about the fourth floor, I feel like I have to say this, right? If you're not on the fourth floor, that doesn't mean we don't care about you. If you're on the third floor, okay, and you want to meet with a pastor, no one's going to say, whoop, nope, sorry. Like, you know, you got to be on the fourth floor to get pastor privileges, okay? If you're on the second floor, does that mean if you call us, we're not going to pick up the phone? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But the fourth floor is where we kind of go public with it. And we give permission for people to speak into our lives. It's saying, hey, these are, the peop- these are my people. These are my people. These are my leaders. I'm, I'm a part of this. Let's do it. Now, the final way we can kind of gain fluency in the language of the Christian life, Paul gives us here little rule, little rules of grammar, you might say, rhythms, memory aids that nudge our minds in the right direction. Think about it this way, this last section, think about it this way. Um, have you ever memorized like maybe in elementary school or high school, you had to memorize like a speech Or you might say something like, well, I can recite that from my heart. What does that mean? Does that mean you just woke up one day and you just knew all this stuff? No, it means you memorized it, you worked at it, and now it just kind of comes natural to you. And that's what Paul's doing right here in this last thing. We learn fluency in the Christian life, the grammar of the kingdom through rules of life. Verse 16, listen, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstance, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench your spirit, do not despise the words of the prophet, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. If you could kind of sum up this book, it would be this paragraph. Rooftop, we call these Six practices. We have six practices that we give ourselves to. That which every church should practice, right? This is kind of rooftops version of this. But let's look at this rule of life. Let's make some comments about it. We won't dive into every part of it. But let's look at the, the first little part here. Look at these first three verbs. Rejoice pray, and give thanks. Now, this church knew a lot about suffering. The early church knew a lot about suffering. Life was hard in these environments. It's hard now, but it's hard in a different, it was hard in a different way then. And what Paul knew was the necessity of being able to have joy in the midst of these circumstances. Doesn't mean it's easy. It's not like a fake joy where, you know, you're dying miserable on the inside, but you just kind of fake a smile and like, oh, it's all great. 
No, it's an acknowledgement that because of Jesus, everything is going to be okay. And it's saying that not glibly or lightly. That we know that Jesus is ruling and reigning in this world and his rule and reign is not made public yet. When he comes back, it will be made public. Right now, it's not made public. We know that day's coming. So even when it gets hard, we can have a sense of deep breath. It's going to be okay. And then he gives another quick little hitters here. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise the words of the prophets, but test everything. What is he saying? Hey, leaders are going to teach you. Leaders are going to show you things. One, don't limit the Spirit's work because of, well, that's not what God does, or who are you to say that? But also don't just kind of take everything they say for granted. Test everything. And then finally, he gives the most basic, yep, profound teaching that if you see this, it just runs all through the Bible. This is like, you know, if you're on a website, this is like a double click back to the problem of humanity all the way back to Genesis 1. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. You see something good in your life going on around you, hold on to it with two hands. If you see something in your life that looks like it might be evil, stay away from it. And verses like these are the ones that kind of make me chuckle a little bit when I see people say things like the Bible's boring or the Bible's outdated. Because name me one human being who wouldn't benefit from being around trusted men and women who love God and can lead and guide them. Show me a human being in our modern world who wouldn't benefit from being a part of a community who will encourage them and warn them. Show me a human being that wouldn't thrive with some wisdom in their life. To end, I want to challenge you with just three things really quickly. Number one, how is your language acquisition going? Do you find yourself talking and walking more and more like Jesus? Can you think back over the past, let's say, year or two, and have you had a few moments where you kind of felt like you were learning that new language and you were starting to put a few things together and maybe that person that you hated, you felt bad for them and you decided to pray for them? Do you have those moments where you feel like, yeah, I feel like I'm changing. I feel like I'm catching on with this new language. Does the way of Jesus start to feel a little more natural? Two, do you have some sort of pastor, small group leader, deacon, somebody in your life who is caring for you? Not like, oh, I go to that church, Matt's the pastor. But do you know them? Have you observed their way of life? Not just listen to their sermons or responded to their emails, but have you observed their life in a way where you could say, I trust this person to show me how to live like Jesus? A good, maybe 
a diagnostic question. When's the last time you went to a small group leader, a pastor, an elder, and said, I got something in my life and I'm trying to figure it out. Can you give me a few moments? Can you talk with me, pray with me? Lastly, do you have a community? And by that, I mean, do you have people who love you enough not to leave you alone? You see, that's the lie of modernity. The lie of the world in which we live is that if we love people, we'll leave them alone. We'll let them do what they want. Uh, As long as they're not hurting anyone else, we just, if you love them, you'll just leave them alone. The scripture tells us the opposite, that as human beings living in a world that's confused by good and evil, we need a community to tell us, to warn us, to encourage us, to be patient with us. Do you have that community? Do you have people who will love you enough not to leave you alone? That's my struggle. When I get home at the end of the day, I just want to be left alone. (laughs) I don't want my wife to tell me that I forgot to do something I said I was going to do. I just want to be left alone. Do you have that community? If you give yourselves to these things, a rule of life, spiritual leadership, a community, you will grow in this new language.